The incredible promise of Scripture is that by God's grace, those who have trusted in Christ are declared to be His children and will one day be united fully with Him. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt, delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free resources over at Radical.net. Well, in today's new sermon from 1 John chapters 2 and 3, David Platt exhorts us to see the beauty of God's love for us and how he has equipped us to live not for this world, but for the world to come when we will see Jesus as as he is. Here's David Platt with a sermon titled, I Am a Child of God, from 1 John chapters 2 and 3. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you who are gathering with us at Loudoun, Prince William, Montgomery County, and Main Avenue. Other places, assisted living centers, microsites across Washington, D.C., it's good to be together around God's Word. We are in week four of our journey through John's first letter to the church, which means we are in verse four in our attempt to memorize 1 John chapter one. And thankfully, verse four is short. Is this not just like a relief? And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Oh, my joy just feels a little more complete. So, uh, uh, God is gracious to us in giving us a catch-up verse, uh, in, a, in, a, in a sense, to, to kind of pause after some uh, just, just complex grammar that's in those first three verses. So, I hope many of you are sticking with this, and if you are, I want to invite you to say 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 with me. Here at other campuses, you ready? Okay, all right, four of you are ready, so here we go, it's great, four verses, four of you are ready, all right, here it goes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Boom, good job, all right. Well done, well done. So keep pressing on, don't, don't give up. Hopefully uh, this is becoming part of you, like second nature to you. God's word literally hidden in your heart or just flows out of your mouth. So. Today, we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 28. But before we jump in, I want to step back a minute and think about the last two weeks in particular. So two weeks ago, we talked about assurance of eternal life, how you know you have eternal life. It's a really important question. I would argue the most important question. I was 
in an Uber ride this week and this really nice guy who was driving, had a, had a Buddhist family background, described himself as unsure about religion. I asked him if he ever thinks about what will happen to him when he dies. And he said he actually thinks about it a lot. And he described, his own just kind of went on talking about how he, he's afraid when he thinks about it because he doesn't know what will happen to him. And I said, man, you can know what will happen to you. You can know that you have eternal life. I shared the gospel with him, invited him to join us here as we are learning about what it means to have eternal life and to know that you have eternal life. So remember, that's particularly the point of 1 John. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So a couple of weeks ago, we walked through the end of chapter one and beginning of chapter two to see false foundations for eternal life, which many people often lean on. And then we walked through true foundations for eternal life. That then led to Pastor Mike last week uh, from Montgomery County guiding us through 1 John 2, 18 through 27, where we learned about some people from the church who left the church because they weren't actually Christians. Now you put those two weeks together and I'm guessing some, maybe many of you might be asking, well, wait a minute. I've always heard once saved, always saved. You can't lose your salvation. So is that true? If you're saved from your sin and have eternal life in heaven, can you lose that? And this is where I want you to see, before we dive into this passage today, two realities. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write them down. Reality number one, superficial faith is absolutely possible. Superficial faith is absolutely possible. What I mean by that is faith that is not real or authentic. Maybe someone calls themselves a Christian, goes to church, even says certain words or prays certain prayers, but there isn't actual, real, authentic faith in Jesus. This is the kind of person John is talking about and what we looked at last week in chapter 2, verse 19. Read it there with me again. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So John is talking about people who've been in the church, but now are denying Christ. They're not believing in him. They're not following him. They're not loving like him. All the true foundations for assurance that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And John says, it's not that they lost their salvation in some way. It's that they never had experienced salvation in the first place. Theirs was a superficial faith. So superficial faith is absolutely possible, even common. But, now follow this, superficial faith is absolutely possible, but second reality, saving faith always perseveres. Saving faith always perseveres, meaning true, real, authentic faith in Jesus that saves, this turning from your sin and yourself and trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, faith like that always perseveres. It never fades and is never lost. So, does that mean once saved, always saved is true then? Well, yes, in this sense, but here's why I would pastorally be somewhat uncomfortable with that specific language. Because we are so confused today about what the word saved even means. So many people think saved means go to church. I've prayed certain prayers. I've 
even made a decision at church one day. And when we think saved, we're only thinking of one moment in time when the reality is the Bible talks about salvation much more holistically than this. The Bible talks about how we have been saved, how we are being saved, how we will be saved. So have been saved refers to our justification. The moment when, yes, at that moment, we repent and believe, we turn from our sin in ourselves and we trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, that happens at a point in time. And at that point, God declares us forgiven of all of our sin based on faith alone, in Jesus alone. But that point in time is not the end of the story. Being saved refers to how that point in time triggers a process over time. It's called sanctification in the Bible in which our faith grows as we trust in Jesus more and more and more, as we obey Jesus more and more and more, and we grow to love like Jesus loves, live like he lived, we walk as he walked, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, until the day when we will be saved, which is a reference to the day coming in the future when this life is over and we are fully and finally free from all sin and death and sorrow and our salvation is complete. So when you put all that together, you realize once saved, always saved, while true in essence, could be easily misunderstood. So I would prefer to say saving faith, so true, authentic faith in Jesus always perseveres. It always lasts. It is never lost. So even to use the terminology that we see in scripture, it's 100% biblical to say all who have been justified before God are being sanctified by God and will be glorified with God, guaranteed. That's the picture the Bible gives us. Now, I share all that as a a pastor, through a pastor, because I feel like I'm walking a tightrope on Sundays on this topic specifically. Because on one hand, I know that many people sitting here at one of our campuses today have saving faith in Jesus. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you. That's It's primarily who John is writing to in this letter. And he wants them to be encouraged with confidence as followers of Jesus. I want you to be encouraged like that, especially this morning in this incredible passage we're about to dive into. At the same time, I also know that there are some people sitting here at one of our campuses today who do not have saving faith in Jesus. Who either have no faith in Jesus or a superficial faith in Jesus. And if that's the case, then I don't really want to encourage you. Maybe better put, I want to encourage you by urging you to put your faith in Jesus, like really and truly and biblically. I want to plead with you to stop playing games with Jesus while you live with love for the world like we saw a couple of weeks ago. Now I know that in saying things like that, I could maybe come across as overly serious or even negative. And well, this is serious. This is eternally serious. I can't think of anything more serious. And if it sounds negative, well, I'd put it this way. When you go to a doctor to get a a report on recent scans, if you have cancer, what would you prefer? That the doctor just be positive and say, you look great even though you have cancer? Or would you prefer a doctor who says things are not good, but they can change if we act now? That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say to many people, things are not right before God, and if we don't act now, it will be fatal, like eternally fatal. But 
things can change if you act now. I hope that's what you hear. I pray that's what you hear. And sometimes hard words. And they're not my words. They're God's words. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is clearly not in him. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. I know saying those words is not politically correct. They won't make me or anyone popular, but for what it's worth, my my aim is not to be politically correct or popular. My aim is to be a pastor, which means my goal is higher than being liked for everything I say. My goal is you might live for all of eternity. That's what I'm working for. That's why we're reading this book week after week after week. So all that then leads us to ask, well, okay, how can we know if we have superficial faith or saving faith? You're saying, the Bible's saying, we can be sure we have eternal life, so how can we be sure? So on top of what we've seen the last couple of weeks, that question leads us to the next part of 1 John today, and this passage is awesome. So, I mean, they're all awesome. Everything in the book's awesome, but this text. So follow along with me as I read aloud 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So did you notice in what we just read how many times John uses family language? Children born to a father even the word brother at the end. So six times we see children, four times we see born or seed, and God's called father in verse one. Christians are called brothers in verse 10. 12 total references to family in 12 verses. So here's the truth I want you to see today. So you might write this down. If you want to experience assurance of eternal life, you must understand adoption into God's family. If you want to experience assurance of eternal life, you must understand adoption into God's family. More specifically, you must understand that to be a Christian means that you've not just been born, no one is born a child of God. To be a Christian means you have been born again 
as a child of God. So here's what I want to do. I want to pause for a minute before we dive into the intricacies of this text. And I want us to get some perspective. I want to introduce you to a brother I met in Ethiopia in July named Tamarat. So Tamarat, if you could join me up here. We had, would you, would you welcome Tamarat with me here and at other campuses? We had, many of you know, many of you were there. We had over 200 members of our church family in Ethiopia. And uh, just to give you a perspective, uh, Tamarat had the responsibility of coordinating and directing and leading where teams, a variety of teams of 200 people were spreading out across the capital of Ethiopia. I thought the brother, when I first met him, like, was just an incredible mission trip coordinator, like, like, masterful. But this was kind of a side deal that he was doing for us. He actually leads a whole ministry to orphans in Ethiopia, which we've had the opportunity to partner together with. So I, I want to introduce him to you, but I want you to hear a little bit about his story. So, uh, so Tamarat, tell us, give us a, a, a picture, just yeah, how you grew up, your life growing up. Uh, when I was three years old, my father died, and I grew up with my grandma till I was six. So at age six, I joined an orphanage down south in Ethiopia, and I grew up there uh, in a Christian orphanage hearing God's word. But I was on and off, and I really did not understand what it really takes to be a child of God. But when I reached age 18, uh, when I was preparing myself to graduate from high school, I experienced to be a child of God. I get connected to Christ in a personal way. And that day, I it was so unique. And I say to myself, now I have become a child of God. I mean, uh, most of you who grew up with your parents, having a father, you know, you have God as a father, but this meant a lot for me as a fatherless. I have God, no earthly father between. So that feeling was so powerful for me that made me to commit my life to follow this God who created the universe. And now I have even a bigger God. I mean, I have a bigger father than all people who have early fathers. So that was an encouragement for me uh, whenever I go through different life circumstances. I always say, I have God. Mm. That's in a unique way. So I, I have a family now. I have three boys and a girl, uh, Barnabas, Paul, Silas, and Lydia. I call them my apostolic team. <laughs> so one day, my son came and asked me, Dad, you haven't had a dad like a dad. And you grew up in an orphanage. And he asked me, how is it so that you are a good dad to us? Where did you learn that? Where did you get that from? And I say to my son, son, I have God as a father. And everything that I'm today is because I know my father in heaven who takes good care of me. And that's where I learned to be a good dad. 
in the or- or orphanage that I'm working today, this is my intention. I have learned God to be my father, and I want children in Salamta Family Project to experience God as their father, because it really means a lot for a child growing up in an orphanage or a child growing in Salamta family home, knowing God as a father will change their world. And that is what I have experienced. God is my father. Like when I say he's my father, I really mean it like he's my father. He's been with me through ups and downs. His love never changed. Each time I go astray, he kept chasing me, bringing me back to the right track. And this is the God I worship. This is the God I serve. And this is the God I want our children to know him personally. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Just to give you a picture so that Tamarat leads this ministry called Salamta. And instead of being kind of a, a more traditional orphanage, uh, what they do is they actually take children who are orphans and put them in homes with, uh, with family, with brothers and sisters, uh, parents, and, uh, and where they will belong to that family just like any child will belong to that family uh, till they go to be with the Lord. Like. And in the process, they show these kids God as Father. So that's the picture I want you to have in your mind. As we walk through this text, I want you to picture the Christian life in these terms. I I think I've shared this quote before. It's from one of my favorite books of all time, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I can't recommend that book highly enough to you. But in it, Packer asked the question, what is a Christian? And this is his answer. What is a Christian? He writes, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Packer goes on to explain how the New Testament teaches that over and over and over again. And he points to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 as one example. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. Packer goes on to say, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So I read that and I think, I want to understand Christianity well. I want the people in this church to understand Christianity well, which means I want us to make much of the thought of being God's child. Having God as Our father is your father. I want that reality to prompt and control your worship and your prayers and your work and your friendships and your marriage and your family, your entire outlook on life like we just heard. And this text just does it today. Speaking of the Christian, the follower of Jesus, from the first words in verse 28, little children, who's, John has already said, he's talking to true believers in Christ, those with saving faith in Christ, So I just want you to hear, maybe to write down, let's soak in five truths for the Christian. Here they are. Number one, for the Christian, God is our perfect father. God is our perfect father. 
And this is, just like we heard, this is really good news for students in this gathering right now, adults who either don't or have not had a dad, or maybe you, you don't or have not had a, a good loving dad. It's good news to hear that God is our perfect father. And you know that's good news, even if you grew up or have now under, you grew up under or have now a great dad, because it's still good news because God is a lot better than him. (laughs) He's so much better than him. He's infinitely better than your good dad. God is perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly wise. God always knows what is best for us. God is perfectly powerful. He is never unable to act on his children's behalf. God is perfectly knowledgeable. He knows everything about our lives. There's nothing hidden from him, past, present, future. God is perfectly good. So Christian, this perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, sovereign God of the universe is your dad. He's your father in heaven. See what kind of love the father, God, has given to us. Some translations say lavished on us, that we should be called his children. I love that phrase. Uh, What kind of love? Some translations say what manner of love or such a great love. So the word in the original language of the New Testament occurs only seven times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it implies like astonishment, amazement. Originally, the adjective meant of what country? So think about it. It's like John is saying, the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to anything else we know or experience in this world. It's otherworldly. Christian God has otherworldly love for you. Right where you're sitting. Like, don't let this just go to other people generally. Like right where you're sitting here, other campuses, God is your heavenly Father. You belong in his family So follow this. Salvation is not just God as judge sitting on a bench and declaring you forgiven of all your sins as if that's the end of the story. Yes, when you place your faith in Jesus, God as judge forgives you of your sins, but then he rises from the bench, comes down to where you are, takes off your chains and says, come home with me as my son or daughter. God says this to you. God does this for you. That's otherworldly. That's so foreign. How is that even possible? Well, second truth, Jesus is our perfect brother. Jesus is our perfect brother. Now, that feels almost inappropriate to say because we think of Jesus as Savior, our Lord, our King, not as our brother. But listen to what the Bible teaches. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he... Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Listen to how Jesus refers to his disciples. After he rose from the dead in Matthew 28, verse 10, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. My brothers, there they will see me. John 20, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. God the Father, go to my brother, say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In Mark 3, 35, he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. 
The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the unique son of God, God in the flesh, but he's also our perfect brother who made it possible for us to be adopted into the family, which is what 1 John 3 is all about. You look at the descriptions of Jesus here. Chapter two, verse 29, he's righteous. Chapter three, verse three, he's pure. Verse five, we learn that in him there is no sin. He's perfect, righteous, pure, totally without sin. Sin is nowhere to be found in Jesus' nature. He is totally unlike us. He is our perfect brother who came, verse five says, to take away sin. Look at verse eight. Huh, follow this. The reason the Son of God appeared. Why? Why did Jesus, the Son of God, our perfect brother, appear? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Huh. Think about that. The whole point in that verse, 1 John 3 is teaching, the devil's work is sin. That's what the first part of that verse, verse 8 says. The devil has been sinning since the beginning. Since Genesis 3, the devil has been tempting men and women, every single one of us, to turn aside from God's way to our own way, tempting us to turn away from God, leading us away from life to death. That is the devil's work. And Jesus came to destroy that work forever. How did he do that? Well, that's 1 John 2, 1 and 2, which we've already studied. Jesus Christ the righteous is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came, he lived without sin, and then he died to pay the price for sin as a propitiation, a sacrifice for our sin. Then three days later, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and the devil. That's a good big brother to have. <laughs> One who has conquered death <laughs> and the devil. And the Bible teaches that all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus are welcomed in to the family as children of God. Oh, I've prayed that today, right before you came up, you were just pleading before God, please, oh God, Adopt people in your family today. I just pray. I know some of you are here right now and you do not know you are a child of God. You do not know God as Father because you've not put saving faith in Jesus. You've not trust, turned from your sin yourself and put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. I invite you to be adopted by God today. Like today, that can happen right where you're sitting. Become a child of God. That's a great day. It's an eternally great day. Now, the problem is, so keep going here, God our perfect father, Jesus our perfect brother, even after we come into God's family, so we're adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus, here's the third truth, we are imperfect children. We're imperfect children. That's what we've seen all over First John as we've been studying this book. None of us is a perfect child of God. We all still struggle with sin, just on a personal level, this is part of how God has used First John in my life this last month. I have become so much more aware of sin in my own life. I would, I would say far more aware the last few weeks than I was before we started this study. I've just been convicted about sin on different levels in different ways. I won't go into all the details, but earlier this week, I was preaching down in New Orleans where I used to live many years ago I did my seminary theological education there. And as I was spending time with God on Tuesday morning, I was freshly convicted of sin that I had not confessed to God or to others 
during my time in New Orleans years ago, and it was, it was painful just thinking about it. Shameful, in a sense. And my first thought was, I don't even want to admit that before God or anybody else. I just want to sweep that under the rug. But I knew based on First John that I couldn't. So I went to two particular people that I had sinned against and just confessed that to them. It was embarrassing. I did not want to do it. But I was, I was preaching on 1 Corinthians 4 Tuesday night there, which talks about how God will one day bring to light things hidden in darkness. And I realized I need to do this now. It's an obedience issue. Just like, I mean, just like everything we're walking through in 1 John was just flooding into my heart. And I just, I just need to tell you how good a father we have in God. So ashamed, I confess my sin to these brothers and both of them just poured out God's grace on my life. They forgave me and ended up encouraging and affirming me. I was in tears. I'm so sinful. And God is so merciful. We are imperfect children. I am. You are. We all, even as children of God, we sin. Which 1 John 3, 4 here defines as lawlessness. We break God's law. We all do things our own way instead of God's ways. It's, it's the attitude of our heart that says either, I don't want to know what God says, I just want to do what I want to do. Or I know what God says and I'm going to disobey it. Which is a horrible thing for a son or daughter to say to a father. A father whose ways are always, always, always loving and good and best. That's the difference between earthly fathers and our heavenly father. I think about it. I, I love my kids over here. Parents across this room love their kids. We don't wish ill for our kids so we try to teach them, try to show them how to live in ways that will be good for them, would never want to hurt them. Yet sometimes we, we don't do what's best for them. Maybe we give them counsel that's not good because we're not perfect. Heather and I often look at each other and say, who put us in charge of these kids? We don't know what we're doing. How do we parent? What are we doing? This or that circumstance. But here's the beauty. God never asked that. What do I do? He's perfect. He, he never doesn't know what to do. He never, ever, ever, ever gives bad counsel. Never. He's our perfect father. He always knows what is best, always tells us what is best, yet we are prone to not trust him. Prone to rebel against his Word, that's the essence of sin here. And to make it even more sobering when we sin, since we're not following God, our Father, then who are we following when we sin? First John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, of the thought. Like whenever we sin, we're like the devil, acting in outright rebellion against God. Whenever we sin, like the smallest sin in our lives, we are following the devil who hates us and wants to lead us to death instead of our perfect father who loves us and wants to give us life. So when this happens, when we sin, what does the imperfect child of God do? The imperfect child of God does what we've seen Already in 1 John, we confess our sins knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. 
If we sin, 1 John 2, 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus, our perfect brother, is our advocate whose sacrifice covers over our sins so we confess our sin we turn from it by his grace, by his mercy. Come back to him as our Father. We say, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to think that. I don't want to desire that. I think about my dad on earth. I, I love my dad. His birthday actually would have been today if he had not suddenly, unexpectedly gone to be with the Lord years ago. And I love my dad because he loved me so much. He, he was kind of dad, just active in my life in every way, just caring for me, always coaching me at every game, my biggest fan and best friend. And I obviously look back then with regret on times when I dishonored him or disobeyed him. And he was so good to me. When I did things that I thought were best, but would inevitably learn that he's a lot wiser than I am. And I would go to him, and he would, of course, forgive me, and as we would talk, what would happen is I would learn more and more and more to trust him. This is the Christian life. Like daily learning to trust God more than we trust ourselves. When we sin against him, going to him, receiving his forgiveness and growing in our experience of the good life that our perfect father desires, has designed for us. This is Christianity. Imperfect children with a perfect father growing in his grace to know and trust and love him more and more and more. Which leads to the fourth truth. We now live to display the family likeness. We now live to display the family likeness. So put all this together. God is our father. Jesus, our brother. We are imperfect children, but Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. Sin does not have power over us anymore. We are free to experience life as children of God. So we grow more and more and more into the likeness of our father. We see this in our own families, right? Don't, don't we see ourselves? If you're a parent, you see yourself and your kids? In good ways and not so good ways. So your parents and you sometimes, I sometimes look at Heather and say, I've become my dad. <laughs> She'll look at me and say, I've become my mom. And again, good ways, bad ways sometimes, right? But the good thing is, when God is your heavenly father, the more you become like him, the better it always is. So I was, uh, just happened to be in my Bible reading this week in Ephesians chapter five, verse one. Be imitators of God as beloved children. I thought, that's it. That's the Christian life, growing to imitate our Father as his children, specifically being conformed in the image of our brother, right? Put this together with one of our favorite verses that we go to all the time, Romans 8, 28. Then think about it in verse 29 right after it. 
We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to purpose. Even the toughest things in life, God's working together for good. Well, what's the purpose that he's working together, these things together for? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The whole point there is our purpose is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. All things are working together toward that end that we might become more and more and more like Jesus. This is the Christian life, growing to look more more and more and more like Jesus, which is why 1 John 3 says all that it does. Look at, look at verse two. We know that when he appears, this is what we're looking forward to, we shall be like him. Verse three, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And then it's after John says this that he talks about how we don't keep on sinning. And if we do keep on sinning, it's a sure sign that we don't know Jesus, that we're not children of God. Listen to verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now again, when John says keep on sinning there, he's not saying that the Christian, the child of God never sins. We've already talked about that. The word picture here is a picture of actively, continually sinning without confession, without repentance, without any desire to turn from sin. What the Bible's saying here is for the Christian, for the child of God, persistent sin against the Father without confession and repentance is inconceivable. That's, that's not what a child of God, a child of God is born by his, born again by his spirit. His seed lives in you. You have new life in him and you're growing into his likeness. So you flee sin. And if or when there comes a point when you fall into sin, you don't stay there and live in it. You leave it. You hate it. You confess it. You fight it. And the next time you're tempted, you fight it with greater vigilance and greater passion because you hate it all the more. Why? Because you want to be like Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You want to follow Christ with your life and you hate the fact that you still fall short. Because you don't want to fall short anymore. You want to please your father. You want to follow his ways and enjoy his life. And as a result, you can't wait till the day when you won't sin anymore. Which leads to the final truth. Christian, child of God, we are looking forward to the family reunion. We're looking forward to the family reunion. Now, I don't know what comes in your mind when you hear the term family reunion and for some of you it's not like a positive time so uh so if that's the case uh, just get that out of your mind for a minute that was my only danger in using this these words I was like oh but some people dread these so this is not the kind you dread so from the first verse we read in this passage we hear about Jesus coming not just his first coming when he came to destroy the works of the devil but his second coming verse 2 chapter 3 we read about his coming or his appearing and the word there refers to the arrival of a king or a ruler with splendor and majesty. So here's the picture. Jesus came once, 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, as a baby, born in a manger to destroy the devil. My brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back again. Anytime, any day, could be today. This time he's not coming as a baby. He's coming as a king and not in a manger. He'll be riding on a white horse and he won't be coming to destroy the devil. He'll be coming as the one who has already destroyed the devil to claim that which belongs to him. And First uh, John chapter three, verse two says, we are going to see him like physically, literally, visibly. 
There's going to be a day when suddenly, instantly, we're going to see him. Out of the blue, we're going to see him in all of his glory. So, Christian, look forward to that day more than you look forward to anything else. Like, look forward to that day more than you look forward to your wedding day. Look forward to that day more than you look forward to graduation or vacation or retirement or your next promotion or your next raise or your next purchase or whatever. Look forward to that day more than anything else in this world because on that day, we're going to see him and we are going to be like him, free from sin, free from sorrow, free from death. Free to live forever as children of God. God, our perfect father, Jesus, our perfect brother, and brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, and tongue, the adopted family of God. Oh, I, I, uh, I was reading and praying this last week for the request that people submitted on response cards. And without using any names, here's just a sampling from them. One person said, my, my husband's first cancer treatment is tomorrow. My friend has stage three cancer. Another, my, my dad just learned he has stage four lung cancer. My family needs a miracle right now. Levon, one of our pastors, longtime church members, is in critical ICU right now. We're waiting to hear prognosis for the future. Another writes, my spouse is walking away from God and from our marriage. We have three young children. Many others. I need prayers for God to restore my marriage. Restore my husband, my wife. One writes, pray for me as I look for a home. I am special needs, 25 years old. My mom can't take care of me, so I'm living in an elderly home right now, and I want to be around people closer to my age. Another pray for my coworker who just lost her daughter to suicide. I can go on and on just, uh, and those things that were written down and they are a microcosm of what is represented around this room and other campuses right now. I know that. Different hurts and pains and struggles. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to remind us today based on God's word in 1 John. That we have a father in heaven who is perfect. We have a perfect brother at his right hand right now who is interceding for us in the middle of all these things. He knows all of them. And one day, the father is going to say to the son at his right hand, it's time. And the son is going to come back. And on that day, cancer will be no more. And special needs will be no more. And divorce will be no more. And broken relationships will be beautifully restored. And sin and sorrow will totally cease. And death itself will fully and finally be destroyed. So, as imperfect children, let's live every day 
to grow into his likeness. And as we do every day, let's fix our eyes on the sky, looking forward to the family reunion. We will see his face join with family from all nations and every generation as he wipes away every tear from your eye forever. You will know the wonder of what it means to say, I am a child of God. Will you pray with me? Oh God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We praise your name for the love that you have lavished on us. God, I pray that today, I pray that today in this room and other campuses, even right now, that people would come to know you as Father. God, I pray there might be some, some kids, some students, some adults who see they're separated from you. That Maybe they've even gone through religious motions in their lives, but they don't know you as dad, as father. Through Jesus, I pray you would bring them into the family even right now. Bring them to put their faith and their trust in you in their heart right now, I pray. And that in the process, you would also, oh God, by your spirit, just encourage your sons and daughters in the middle of whatever they're struggling with and sin in their lives, in the middle of sorrow, they're enduring. They would know they're loved by you, forgiven of their sin, free from its power and filled with your hope in the midst of even the darkest days that you are with them and you're working even these things for good and ultimately they will not have the last word. Your grace and your mercy, your love as our Father will have the last word. All glory be to your name. Our Father in heaven, in Jesus, our perfect brother's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to watch today's full sermon or download the free discussion questions associated with it, you can do all that and more at our website, Radical.net. And there's also a brand new downloadable resource that we want to make mention before we depart today. And it's called 12 Traits, Embracing God's Design for the Church. If you are a regular listener to the Radical Podcast, then you might have noticed for past several weeks, David preached through a series called The 12 Traits of a Biblical Church. And this new resource is an outworking of that sermon series, and it's available to you for free. We know the church belongs to Jesus, but will we trust him to call the shots? And unfortunately, many Christians never stop to ask what God's word says about how the church should function and what it should be doing. In this brand new downloadable resource, David Platt highlights 12 traits from God's word that should characterize every single church. That's from preaching and teaching, evangelism, discipleship, all the way down to worship and mission. No church is perfect, but as we embrace God's design, we're going to find that his wisdom and his power are simply more than sufficient for the mission Christ has given to his people. 
to make disciples of all nations. And so you can download 12 Traits Embracing God's Design for the Church for free just by visiting Radical.net forward slash book. That's Radical.net forward slash book. I hope you will get a copy. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us there at Radical.net.